0: Welcome to My Life, Chesedah supplied episode 386. A happy Rishchei Shvat to everyone. This program is dedicated by Mendel and Leah Simon in memory of Leah's grandmother, Rivka Basfredj, who passed away last week on the 21st of Tavis. This is one of the programs that I and I'm sure all of us would prefer prefer not to have. But on the other hand, as the expression goes, it's difficult to speak, but even more difficult to be silent. So it's a special edition addressing a topic that is on so many of our minds. We titled it, Abuse, Betrayal, and Protecting Our Children how to approach the recent scandal and tragedy of a disgraced author accused of serial abuse. Now, though this happened several days ago, last week, we all, including myself, were horribly outraged by the travesty itself, the suicide, which of course followed over six weeks of allegations and then how it was addressed in the community. And I was initially going to just sit down by a camera, as I often do, and just talk about it. Literally, last Tuesday, So Natri wrote to me, you usually react to these things immediately, why is it that you're not speaking? And I'll tell you the truth, it was because, not that I didn't have anything to say, I had much to say, Not just me, but I mean to say, speaking on behalf of Teirach Sidis, how should we approach something like this? But the sensationalism around it, which just adds to the bizarre and distortions and confusions was troubling me, as well as I seeing the different arguments here and there. And I trained myself and I've learned from the best that you have to take a moment of pause a humble pause, just to see how things settle and not just to talk out of rage and anger, even though there is a space for that and there's time for that, especially when you're talking about a real, real travesties. However, to be able to speak about it in a balanced and mature way, the way Torah expects of us, both addressing issues directly, Torah's MS talks about the truth, Torah's Chesed is a Torah of Kindness, for all people, for perpetrators and victims and survivors. So I felt that I want to jump on the bandwagon of just commenting quickly, but think about it a bit and address it in a more, I don't like to say the word balance because it's not about balance here, it's not about there's only one truth, but in a more, um, let's say, sober and comprehensive fashion. But before I do get into the topics, and I have to tell you that I've been inundated literally. More questions about this than I believe the eight years I've been doing Citizen Applied. Literally hundreds and hundreds of questions of all sorts. I, I put them into categories and structure, and I'll soon explain. At the same time, I wanna begin on a personal note, because this is the real, you know, the, the most important aspect, I think, of all of it. The heart and soul of the matter. I, thank God, was not molested or abused. And I grew up like a naive boy in the yeshiva system. You know, I heard here and there things, but not in any way that I could say was personal. This was not spoken about. But when I began my work, and started speaking with people, started teaching, counseling, the nightmares began to be shared with me. I've had many sleepless nights. Though I've not personally experienced it, but hearing the the horror, the terror, I remember one person telling me, he says, you don't understand, my rabbis, my teachers, when I was molested and I came to share it with someone, they told me, get over it. My parents said the same thing. Things happen, let it pass. He says, of course, I would have wished it should pass. They told me, Hes distract yourself. I tried. I tried to bury it. But you have to understand, he said to me, I cry nights. I cry in my pillow because no one wants to listen to me. So initially, I, to be very honest, going back 40 years ago, I didn't think it was exaggeration. I trusted him. But I was saying to myself, you know, maybe when people are very emotionally distraught, go through trauma, can you really fully describe the picture? But then I realized what he was describing was just the tip of the iceberg, the silence, the crying. And when I think about it, and you know, I have children, I have grandchildren, I'm sure many of you the same, the vulnerability, the innocence the defenselessness of a child is so pure, a soul that God sent to this world and is given to the care of adults, parents, educators, and others. So it's not just a matter of, okay, someone did something wrong. We're talking about someone defenseless. I will say this unequivocally, that a generation that does not protect its young, its children, is a failure, is a travesty itself. It doesn't matter how many mitzvahs and Torah are done. That is the single most important thing because that's the generations to come. Well, who did God want as guarantors for the Torah? Not the sages, not the patriarchs, not the scholars, not the adults, he wants the children. The child is the center of all of life. Everything is shaped in our childhood years. So to me, this is the number one issue. This is not even a question of who's guilty, who's not guilty. That needs to be addressed, and we're going to address it. But if you don't hear that that voice of compassion and empathy, you're missing the whole point. It all begins with that. So I wanted to begin with this because to me, that is the most critical component in this entire discussion. The children. And for that matter, anyone that's defenseless, it could be a teenager, it could be an adult as well, anyone that's vulnerable, and especially coming to a rabbi, to a leader, to a counselor, to a therapist, that makes it far, far worse. Every form of molestation is terrible. But there you're going to the person that you trust. And when the trust is betrayed, what do you do then? Who do you trust then? Because it's not an enemy, Officially. And then when you add to the equation the suicide, that the author chose to take that path, and again, we're not getting into what it, in his head, was it due to public shame, was it due to his unable to live with himself, was it due to narcissism, what he did to his family, to others. However you explain it, but that is also part of the major crime here. so with that said reminds me of the verse right in the beginning of the torah there are two big questions that you hear that god asks a human being first the question posed to adam and then the question posed to Cain, to cain to adam the question god says is a after he ate from the tree of knowledge he said where are you i don't recognize you you've betrayed yourself you've betrayed the world you've betrayed your destiny you betrayed history. I don't recognize. Where are you? And that was a wake up call. And the second question to Cain when he killed his brother Abel out of jealousy. And when God says, Where's your brother? he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then God says to him, Ma Sisa, what did you do? The cry of the blood of your brother is crying out to me. The voice of the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the earth. And these are the two questions I would like to set the stage and the tone. Ayeka, where are you? And that question is to each one of us. And a Ma'asisa, what have you done? So yes, it could be one criminal, two criminals, but what have we done? What has this generation done? It would seem that the blood of our brother may be absorbed in the earth and disappear. And we could think it's covered up. But no, it cries out. It cries out to God. And in effect, we're told about it as well, so it's also crying out to us. The Rambam writes, in the beginning of the laws of fasting, he writes the following. That when a catastrophe strikes a community... It would be cruel, achzarius, cruel, to ignore it and say it just happened. Mikra Niklas, an accident. Let's move on. No, the community has to do soul-searching, introspective, and say, what have we done? What do we need to do to remedy the situation? Because things just don't happen. Now, though there he's talking about catastrophe, the destruction of the temple, or other catastrophes, but it really refers to every catastrophe. What we have before us is one that has affected especially the religious Jewish community. But by extension, I've heard this from many of my secular friends who are aware of it, and similar stories happen all the time. The cover-ups. The crimes and then the cover-ups. And one of those harsh, harsh expressions that the silence is worse than the rape. In many ways it can be worse because of the invalidation. So... When we hear of such events, we'd prefer not to have heard of them. More importantly, we prefer it shouldn't have happened, but that it did happen compels us, it behooves us as a wake-up call to look at ourselves, to look at the situation clearly, honestly, and to do whatever it takes, not just to find justice, but to do everything possible to prevent and to eradicate as much as we humanly can accomplish any such crime ever happening again. Now, that may sound unrealistic, but you begin somewhere. You have to begin somewhere. So with that in mind, I want to address this topic, and I've broken it down into several subcategories, so to speak, which reflect all the questions that came my way and many other questions that are out there. And here's I broke it down. First of all... The general Torah perspective on such a travesty and betrayal. As I mentioned, the Torah is a Torah of truth, a Torah of justice, a Torah of chesed, of kindness. So the Torah gives us a guide to both look at things, both positive and negative, without denial, without cover-up, addressing it in a healthy approach to things. Now we all are outraged when something like this happens. But we have to make sure that our outrage should be channeled properly. And that's why we need a Torah as well. So just as the Torah guides what is considered a crime and what is not considered a crime and how you address a crime, it also guides us in our passing judgment, should we be passing judgment and how we address every given issue. This is not to minimize any crime but there's a healthy way of addressing it and not a healthy way of addressing it. So the first thing, we'll talk about the general perspective on events like this. Another is intervention and reporting abuse. How do we interview? How do we report? And you'll see many questions within that category itself. Number three is the community response. How has the community responded? What do you do when there's different responses? Number four, speaking with children. How should we speak with our children about this? Especially those that have grown up on his books. Next is his books. How do we address that? How do we deal with them? Victim's closure is the next category. And finally, lessons learned and looking ahead. So I'm going to go in this order. Let's start with a perspective. The perspective is a combination of two very different elements. One is the crime itself, and number two is how do we react to that crime? What should we do? So, around 10 years ago, when I remember writing my first articles on this topic, and I believe I was one of the first to really write about it, I'm not saying to toot my heart, I'm just stating it, you could check into it, I received a lot of negative criticism. How could you bring this to the table? It's something that should be kept private. It's very rare. Rabbis, very respectable and reputable rabbis called me. Some who knew me, some who didn't know me. I wrote about it, not in any disrespectful way. I didn't accuse any individual, I didn't name anyone. I just said, we have a cancer that has to finally be addressed. I was hearing about it. I was dealing with it. I know other professionals that were. But it was still very much in the closet, under the cover. Everything was covered up. Almost everything. And I remember speaking to a few rabbis of the record. And they said to me, we don't find precedent in previous generations that this was a a major issue. So how could we just suddenly create a new precedent and come out the way you've come out with these strong statements that we must eradicate this cancer, this evil, this murder, soul murder, I believe is what I called it, based on what my own experience and understanding of it. Where do you get this from, I was asked. So I said to them, look, I don't know what was in previous generations. We weren't there. We could say that it existed and they dealt with it in, a different, in their own way. We could say it existed less. We could say maybe it was a pure environment. So either it was addressed in a much healthier way or as I said, maybe it wasn't as extreme. But one thing is for sure that today ask any expert and ask them, is it something that is minor, a minor like someone gets a scratch on their finger or someone sexually abused or molested or violated or is it something more serious? Just like you would ask a doctor, is this a small matter? Is it a superficial uh, wound or is it a serious wound? And we know from the Gemara. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, Hey, Omid Beis, talks about Rav, who spent 18 months with a a shepherd in order to learn by these animals what is considered a permanent wound, what is considered a passing, superficial wound. Mum-ever, mum-kavua. Why didn't he just know it on his own? Because God said, I created a world, go study. Just Just like we give a permission to a doctor to heal, you ask an expert. There were questions about when radio first became. Can radio be used to hear the Megillah or other mitzvahs? So it's not just a question whether you could hear it on the radio. The question is, how does radio work? Is it like just a megaphone, which is also a question? Or does it actually alter Kail Adam, the voice of the person? So, in other words, you have to study the Hefzah, the object. So I said, here too. For a study, what are the impacts, the psychological, emotional, physical, intimate impacts on a child, or for that matter, an adult that is violated, and especially by an authority, so-called authority. So to the credit of some rabbis, they actually went ahead and did that, and came back and they said, you're right, we didn't know. So in the most basic level, you could say, some people simply don't know. Some people don't want to know, it's too, too horrendous. And then, unfortunately, there's another side to it. There are those who've told me, off the record, they say, if you start digging, you'll never know how high you'll reach. Basically suggesting that it's more prevalent than we want to know. And if we really open up, it's a can of worms, at Pandora's box, who knows what will come out. And I said, look, better it come out, and let's heal it, than just keep you covering it up. There's no way. Emes edit's titzmach. Is going to emerge at some point. And it's going to be tremendous. Besides, Chil Hashem, desecration of God's name. Tremendous damage just from that. So it's better to keep it undercover. This debate continues to rage, as you see. And I have no doubt that there are different people who have different approaches to this. But there are definitely some who feel that this, is, this happens. This is what people can do. Sometimes I say to myself, does that mean that you feel you're capable or you feel that you may be guilty as well, so it's harder for you to acknowledge? And I'm not, again, pointing fingers that anyone who minimizes is guilty. But you wonder about all these things. And in the spirit of this conversation, we have to be open. Because if we're not open, then we go back to the same problem. The blood is being absorbed by the ground, being covered up, and we're not addressing it. So the first thing is to understand the crime of this. Unless you have that clear, all, everything else will be obfuscated. Because maybe it's not such a bad thing. That, of course, I think very few people are going to say right now. Especially openly. They may think that. The second, so let's, uh, let's, uh, let's for, for argument's sake, say that's not an issue. Nobody minimizes it. But the fact is that you still don't hear from certain circles that outrage You hear more about the shaming of the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator, we should say, than about the shaming and the crime of the violation of those that were victims. And even if it's a doubt, if it was your child, and you know your child comes and tells you something happened, you don't just say, oh, maybe give him the benefit of the doubt. You look into it. You investigate. You're definitely going to keep your child away from that person even though you can't yet declare him guilty. Which brings me to the second half of this, how the tater looks at it. It is true. Every person deserves a due process. There's a way the tater deals with crimes. You can accuse someone. They have a right to defend themselves. You bring witnesses, you bring evidence, and you deal with it. But that doesn't mean that if someone's accused of something, you just ignore it and say, oh no, everything is fine because he's presumed innocent. He's presumed innocent, yes as an individual, but you still have to deal with the fact that, there are, that people are accusing this person of something, and not just of something, of something so damaging. And in many ways, it is like murder, and some say even worse than murder, because it's not one time. You murder someone, you murder them. Kyan killed Hevel, that was a one-time thing, and still the blood keeps crying out. But here it's ongoing, because the person continues to live with that deep wound in the deepest part of their soul. And that's why it's so vital to understand that. Because when it comes to such a crime, the concepts of Lashanhara, Hara, slander, Messirah, informing, don't apply. We're talking about even a suffix Pekoch Nefesh, even the doubt of someone being in danger. You immediately have to act on it. And it still doesn't mean that the perpetrator is definitely guilty. But you have to do everything possible to protect the innocent. Because let's say, you know, someone is possible murderer. And being accused of that. So you let him run down the street with a knife because you don't know for sure whether he actually murdered? Of course not. That's called the din of a radiv. A radiv means someone that's actually running with a knife. You don't have to wait for him to kill someone or prove that he killed someone in the past to call him out to, to, to do something about it. So this is critical to distinguish between the two. And I will say absolutely at the same time that outrage has to be channeled. Now, unfortunately, in this case, this individual chose to take his life, which is also a crime, according to the Torah. Even if you want to defend it and say, "Is the shame was too much to bear. But the bottom line, the Torah way, is you face your accusers. You defend yourself. Now, what he's done, he's basically going to face a far harsher bezdin, bezdin Shalmayla. There, there's no he said, she said. There there's Elam emes. there's only truth. So it's actually far, going to be far more direct. There they don't need evidence and witnesses. What happened, everyone knows, is, is recorded there. However, the Bezun Shalma, it's not my problem, not our problem, that the, the Eberster will deal with. But we are left now on earth to deal with this and address it. So the bottom line is the Teirah's Chesed, the kindness of Teirah and the Teirah's emes looks at both things squarely in the face. On one hand, the MS of real crimes being perpetrated. Children, boys, girls, adults, men, women, and without going into all the details, accusing someone of abusing their position of authority. And not only that, a person who represented protecting children and abusing that very position that is not a small matter. And any individual, and especially an authority and a rabbi, that dismisses or ignores that, it's a serious problem. You must look at it. At the same time, yes, if he was alive right now, he should be given the full due process. You don't lynch anyone. Even though when stood for the news first broke six weeks ago, as I said, it all created a tremendous outrage. So you have to address it address it in the proper way. So now the additional element that we can't find justice on earth and closure with this individual just complicates matters more, but we're going to address that as well. So this is an overall perspective. Number one, that we must believe and acknowledge and speak to children or to anyone that accuses someone. We are here to listen to you. The worst possible thing you can do when someone has already been violated and shamed and hurt in such a way is to further hurt them by ignoring them, or by minimizing, or by saying, or being skeptical. Obviously, it should be addressed and looked into in detail, but with sensitivity. Someone comes and says to you, someone stabbed me in the heart. You don't just say, oh, you know, are you sure? You listen with empathy. And then you do what you have to do to clarify and to find out the facts as much as you can. Which leaves the second part. Now, as far as the public goes, we are not here to judge anyone. It's not our job. God is the, the ultimate shaykh, the ultimate judge. But we are here to do whatever it takes to make sure judgment is brought, in, and justice is brought into place. That's why there's a Torah, and that's why they're rabbis, and that's where they're poskim, people who rule. And it has to be with those guidelines. Now, can a person who's been emotionally hurt be objective about it? Which is like what the argument some people are making. Perhaps not completely. So what? Everybody's subjective. And you take that into account as well. But that doesn't mean because someone's subjective that they weren't hurt. That's why you have balanced people. When I say balanced, people who are more objective, who are able to look at it, take seriously with accusations and address them in an appropriate way. So this is overall perspective. Now in this itself, here's a bunch of questions that I received that I'd like to address. What should be our overall response? So what should be our overall response? I said earlier, the overall response is what the Rambam says, that we have to, this is a wake-up call. This is meant for us to learn from and do something about it. Yes, it includes our anger, but more importantly, it has to lead to action. And we'll talk about that later at the end of the program, the things we learn from it and takeaways and looking to the future. So that's the overall response. Overall response, as well as I just summed up, is both taking this crime seriously, understanding its gravity, and as well as allowing the process of finding clarity and justice to take hold. There is a Tata approach to that as well. Okay, Then, why would God allow an individual who would commit such heinous crimes to reach such a high position of power and influence within the religious public, and especially over the innocent hearts and minds of children? So to read a little more detail, as like every other from Jew most likely feels, and I would add even non-from Jew, I'm in total shock over the tragic news involving the famous author and educator, both from the actions that he was accused of doing as well as from his suicide. There's so much to talk about the story, but one thing I think I need, I need some comfort in is regarding what is God's message. Why would God allow an individual who would commit such heinous crimes and sins to be elevated to such a high position of power and influence within the religious public? and I have access to the hearts and minds of the most precious of the gems of Jewish people, which are the children of a full generation, including myself and my own children. This incident is not just another perpetrator getting caught, as I am not aware of an individual who has had greater influence and popularity amongst from children, religious children of a full generation, as much as he, and therefore the hurt and pain and confusion is so strong and so intense, not to mention that he had to top it off with a suicide which in in and of itself, irrelevant of all the accusations against him, is one of the most educationally hurtful things that he can do to our generation and to our children. My question is not on him. My question is on God. Why on earth would God allow such a person to gain access to an entire generation of our minds and souls and hearts? to then have it be destroyed on us in such an unprecedented manner, leaving us feeling deeply confused, scared, losing trust and authority in rabbis, in the system, in the Torah, and demonstrating to us in a most vivid way that suicide is a way out of your problem. I'm not sure you can help me with this question, as I don't know if anyone knows the answer. Well, as soon as you ask questions about God, yes, nobody knows God's ways we don't understand God's mysterious ways. But we do know what God told us in the Torah, what you do about it. So you may not know why, but you know what you do about it. The Rambam said it, and I quoted it several times already. A wake-up call. There's no question that when something happens, and maybe a smaller event, and there have been already other scandals of a similar nature, it's meant to wake you up. And especially now in the last days of Golas, before Mashiach comes, we're told... There's the concept of Yizbaru Vyislabnu Hadvarim. That things will become clear. They'll become crystallized and clear. In other words, a darkness and an evil that lurks in secret is far worse than one that comes and is open. Like the Ralph says about Anoichi Bayemahu, Anoichi Haster Aster ponai. In that day, in that mysterious day, I will cover and cover my face, a double covering. It's one thing when you know something is a problem, you know it's dark, but there's another when the darkness conceals the darkness. Concealment, silence, is worse than the crime in that sense. So therefore, before Mashiach comes, we're told that there'll be clarity. That darkness will begin to emerge, you'll see it openly. So sometimes it can look like the worst of times. But think of it this way, after thousands of years, and you're reaching the bottom of the pot, So the the pores are opening up and the toxins are seeping out and we see them. Of course, we'd rather they wouldn't be there. But once they're there, you'd rather see them than not see them, as painful as it may be. Now again, people love denial. The easiest thing is it didn't happen, or you minimize it. But any infection, if you don't nip it in the bud, begins to fester, and then it turns into a monster. We, We are responsible not because we did the crime, but we participate when we don't do anything about it. Perhaps this is the ultimate wake-up call, that a person like this, yes, that achieves such popularity, such influence on children, and spoke spoke about abuse, should be now found, or let's call it allegedly found, to have perpetrated the worst possible crimes, and then to top it off, as you put it, suicide, If that's not a wake-up call. The only way to justify, and I don't even like that word, the only way to, to, to redeem, I would say, these events is to create a major historical unprecedented revolution of reclaiming healthy intimacy and healthy sexuality. And there should be zero tolerance of any perpetration from any person, and especially those that are in leadership positions, rabbis, teachers, educators, authors, role models. Zero. I would say even below zero tolerance if there's such a thing. That's on the surmara level, on, on, on avoiding the negative. And on the positive level, a tremendous unprecedented historical initiative to educate children, teenagers, men, women, adults, parents, educators, of what it means to be What it means to be a human being, what it means to have a soul, and what is healthy intimacy? God created sexuality and intimacy. It's not man-made. What is the healthy form of it? What is an unhealthy form of it? I'm not even talking about abuse and molestation. That's obviously those violations are the worst. I'm talking about even on a very regular basis. It could be not healthy even if it's not violating someone else. What is a healthy healthy attitude? The time has come to speak about it in modest ways, with in humble ways, in the right way. So this is my response. When you see such a public display in such a negative way, the only response is a public display in a positive way. That's the only legitimate response. In Judaism, it's always that way. In these week's chapters, which is interesting how much it fits into these themes, what do we learn about? Today, we're beginning Parashar boy, What are we learning about? The darkest of times and the brightest of times, all in one chapter. The Torah could have divided and said first the Golis Mitzrayim and all its horrors and genocides and killing and bondage and slavery and all the and all the yes, the, the crimes perpetrated and violated the violations. And then open up a new chapter. <laughs> This is the month of redemption. And then the 15th of the month, the Jews marched out of Mitzrayim. No, in boy, you have the last plagues, the darkest of plagues, including the plague of darkness, which is also darkness, a darkness to the point that you could even feel it. It was so dark, it concealed that it could be dark as well. And then the other plagues. And then, as you hit the bottom of the abyss, rock bottom, the light emerges in the same chapter. Because that's how Judaism teaches us, the Torah teaches us. The darkest can bring to the brightest. And we read it in the beginning of Exodus, in the beginning of Shemaiz, as they were oppressed and afflicted, in direct proportion to that, they thrived and they flourished. Which is a lesson, perhaps the greatest lesson in all recovery and all healing. And that is that oppression and affliction is terrible. But it gives birth to the greatest growth when you allow it to do so. Now, of course, we prefer not having that. But once it's happened, that's where we are now. We need to be able to say in this year, beginning of 2022, in the month of Tevis, end of Tevis, beginning of Shvat, that yes, a horrible thing happened. Horrible things happened. But it was also a year of Geulah. Of We began to redeem, we began to elevate what is healthy intimacy, what is healthy sexuality. What is a child? And we began to answer the question, Ayeko, where are you? And Maasisa, what have you done? With a goal, not just an accusation, to do something about it. Reclaim your true identity. Reclaim the identity of our children as neshama, pure souls of God reclaim our true dignity of the entire human being and human race. And i even say the criminal himself is also a godly creature. Look at the tragedy of that. Look how deep he's fallen. So though, yes, justice is necessary, and you have to bring him to justice and bring the crimes to the surface, but at the same time, the goal is not destroying the person. The goal is that he do tshuva. He chose not to do that in this world. So now he's going to have to deal, as I said before, with God himself. But the goal ultimately is not just to prevent the negative, the absence of abuse, but on the contrary, the embracing of love, of true love, of true intimacy, of true healthy relationships, of what what true intimacy should be like that we can build families and homes in a sacred way and bring children into this world and grandchildren, as has been done over the centuries and over history. So this would be my response in addition to other points that we've made. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for taking the time to address this. I'm really struggling with the story. Firstly, is it really true? There is so much conflicting information in the media. If it is indeed true, I feel so deceived I grew up on his books. His stories taught me so much with so many social, emotional issues I had growing up. The stories were so practical and relevant. Removing them from my bookshelf will leave such a void. Yet I cannot look at a book knowing what kind of double life he led and the countless people he harmed and still does because of the way he chose to end his life. I would love to get your perspective. Uh, Thank you. So, as you can see, I've already answered some of these questions, preempting them in my opening. But still, I want to address the question itself. So there's two sides to this. There's the betrayal you feel, and then there's the individual. The individual, and this is going to be necessary to discuss, especially when we speak with our children, fell to the law's depths. And you'll say, how am I I assuming guilt? We'll say, allegedly, but clearly been accused. And some rabbis say that absolute evidence. I am not sitting in judgment. We're talking about what was what was been told to us and what we know. Regardless, let's not talk about the individual. Conceptually, can a person fall to this level? Absolutely. So you have to say to yourself that as much as you learned from what from his books, an individual is an individual, and I'm not comparing them at all. Kap God's creations, ate from the tree of knowledge. The Jewish people, the Dirdia, that enlightened people who went out, left Egypt, and received the Torah, and 39 days later built a golden calf, Aveda Zara, one of the harshest crimes, actually comparable to Gilead's, to sexual impropriety. So the concept that a great person can fall is not unfortunately not. Not, uh, not uh, un- unthinkable. It's happened. The greater a person, the greater his temptations are. Now, again, I don't want to call this person a great person. He may have done some great things. Influence people. I mean, based on what I'm hearing, maybe he wasn't so great. But even you were to assume that he had great talents. And God gave him these talents. So that's the first thing you have to distinguish between a person did good things. And we'll talk more about that, whether one negates the other. But at the same time, a person can fall. And that's what we have to separate from. So what you learned till now from him or from his books, we can't invalidate that. Why? You would invalidate yourself. It's your lessons that you learned. You may have even learned it from negative places. The concept of tshuva itself is that a person may have done something sinful and then they learn from it and they do tshuva. So you can learn from things that are negative too especially here, there have been many positive lessons. Now, I'm not suggesting it's easy. But then comes the second half. Like in anything in life, things that happen to us don't define us. Whether, we've been, we've been, whether we were victims of a violation or of a betrayal, which is obviously not as extreme, but still, emotionally, psychologically, it doesn't define you. What we have to come to, to separate is what happened, happened, does not define me. I learned things. Now I decided I don't want to have any books of his in my home. It's your choice. We'll discuss that later in that part of the section where we talk about the books. You have to feel free to not be trapped and identified. So I'm not saying it's going to ta- it comes easily. It may take some time to get over it. But at the end, you want to free yourself and say, he does not have a hold over you where you are bothered that you've been betrayed, that you've been deceived. And at some point, to be able to say, it's his problem. It's my problem because what he's done to me, to the community. But I need to heal from that independent of this individual. And that is the healing process of how we separate from things that happen to us to whether we identify by them. We may have suffered, and we definitely have suffered, as the people, as a Jewish people, as individuals, as community, especially now. But we are not sufferers it does not define your identity. That's the critical thing to keep telling yourself. And a practical way to deal with it is, focus on things of growth, the values that you hold on to, embrace those that you love. You need more light to counter the darkness that has now crept into our psyches, or has already been there, but now has been exposed due to these events. Okay. Next question, dear Rabbi Jacobson. While I sympathize with the victims, myself having been a victim of abuse elsewhere, I did find poignant, Rabbi, this individual's suicide by gunshot at his son's gravesite. While I know the suicide—that's a suicide—is forbidden under Jewish law, was he justified in committing this final act? In a sense, his life was over, and he might have been able to do some tshuva. Again, I'm not going to sit in judgment over any individual. That's not what we do. That's what the Torah tells us to do. It does demonstrate a certain cowardice, as some people say. Now, you could say he went crazy because of the shame and suddenly realizing that his entire reputation that he built up will be destroyed. But did he think about his wife and children? Did he think about the community? He definitely did not think about the victims. Did not think about forgive, asking for forgiveness, doing tshuva, so again, I'm not going to come to any final judgment, but, um, but it seems to be that he's going to have to answer to someone of what happened here. Not only what he did, but how he also ended it. And the dramatic thing doing it at his son's gravesite. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can read into it as manipulative, as try, just like his note, to just try to leave a legacy that a doubt that people will think he's real tzaddik. Or some other ways. Clearly he was a brilliant person, and brilliant people can also cover their tracks in brilliant ways and leave so-called doubts. But then when you think more clear-headed, see what's going on here. If a person's a really honest person, you face your accusers. You know, it's not like there was a reason to believe that accusers all conspired against him. For what reason would they do that? So bottom line is, this is, he's gonna have to deal with God himself on this matter. And we have to deal with what we have to deal with. Another person writes. Perhaps this question can be asked from a few different angles, on the subject of viewing another person favorably. Yes, havdan adam We have to always look at a person favorably. I always thought that viewing another person favorably, in the spirit of avich yisrael, love another, shalom peace, and altodnes chavercha, and do not judge another until you're in that person's position. was still possible and still whole, even if you recognize an aspect of negative character in the other person. Just like I'm not perfect, neither neither is he. Just like I have difficulty, so does he. And additionally, when someone exhibits character flaws that may cause harm to me, the healthy choice may be to distance myself. All this is with the knowledge that the person is inherently good, just simply their behavior is not okay or not healthy. I I was at a life coaching class. The instructor was a firm woman religious woman and she said something on this subject which I feel I need clarity on. She said that everyone is good. That one I accept and that usually when we see negative character in another person it is an interpretation rather than than a fact. The facts are whatever transpired that you saw or heard but no matter what happened the person's intentions could have been good. Drawing conclusions about a person based on their actions is an act of interpretation. There is no direct link between your perception and reality. I'm wondering if you think this is a healthy and and Torah approach. I'm aware of the importance of having love, patience, and kindness for every Jew, no matter what and no matter who. But what about those situations where judgment of character is necessary? Hiring someone for your team, choosing a mentor, raising a child to have good middice, good good person, character, redirecting a student, choosing a tutor for your child, choosing a shidduch, a match, having to identify abuse, to distance yourself from a bad neighbor, choosing a friend, choosing to end up friendship. What are your thoughts on this subject? Well, so this I want to answer with another question I came in. Who comes first, perpetrator or victim? I think everyone understands the answer to that. The first thing that needs to be considered is the person who's been hurt. The second thing you consider is the perpetrator. And now the perpetrator also has a right to defend themselves, can be, is assumed innocent. But it also defends on the level of the crime. If you're talking about murder, soul murder, repeated murder, even if it's an accusation, but it's an accusation coming from many people, you can't take that lightly. You can't just say, okay, you're going to find limutskus, find some justification. There's serious crimes to be dealt with. And what about the effect on the victim if you minimize it or you whitewash it or in some way you, you, you ignore it? Is that not consideration? Why are we only considering the perpetrator? There's a little lack of balance here. So the response is, of course, these messages are true. Even for the harshest crime, we still look for merit. But we have to look for it and we have to address it. We can't avoid it. And I think the issue is not whether the person has a right to, for justice, the perpetrator, the question is, do we also minimize the crimes as a result? And I think that's the key balance that I've been addressing back and forth here. So the crime, the, the victim always comes first, and then the perpetrator, because both our lives, why is one life val- more valuable than another? Now the victim is first because they did nothing wrong. The perpetrator may be right, may be wrong, I may have an excuse, I may have a reason, but bottom line is a crime has been committed. And that's what you have to get to the bottom bottom of. If one was wicked and harmed people, but also helped other people, does one negate the other? This goes back to the point before, we had Rosh in history, truly cruel people, that also did something good. So the good we don't negate, but the person depends what consumed them. If they became a murderer, So even if they may have done something good, and even in the process of murdering they may have saved one person, we still call them a murderer. We don't say, oh, they happened to murder. Now, do they have a soul deep inside that remains intact? Yes, criminals in prison do too. Even those that are subject to capital punishment, according to the Torah, also have a soul. But but they have so much, create so much damage to themselves, they can't survive any longer in this world. It's actually a chesed for them, in that case, capital punishment. So we're not talking about capital punishment now. That's not in our hands. But the point that I'm making is that goodness is always there. That's not the question. The question, what what does this person become? It's like any toxin. One toxin you can deal with, you can heal. But if the toxins have so dominated the person that they become an addict, that they're out of control, they can't even acknowledge a problem, then we're dealing with someone who's a, a danger to themselves. They're not even ready to address the issue. So it doesn't negate the good the person does but it definitely conceals the goodness that's in them and that could have been revealed had they, done so, had they done some tshuva, had they had remorse and regret and forgiveness and the process the Torah says of how you can redeem and heal and recover. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I am sure you are inundated with questions about the recent scandal that has shaken up the Haredi world. I hear from some people that this story is proof of what the Tanya tells us, that a person has two neshamas and therefore can simultaneously do so much good and so much bad. And therefore, there's no reason to negate the good to be found in his books. For some reason, this doesn't sit well with me. To me, the fact that he was writing about protection of children and claiming to be their advocate and making their voice heard, at the same time he was doing these very same misdeeds, makes the story even uglier and makes reading and learning from his books even more problematic, for they were a cover for what was going on. I would like to hear your perspective on how to relate to this story from the point of view of Tanya and Chassidis. Okay. Well, absolutely correct. As I said before, the are crimes and their are crimes. And I want to go back to something I read earlier, that, uh, that, that therapist that you had quoted, who had said it's all perception, I totally don't agree. That's not a tighter approach. There are objective crimes. It doesn't matter what a person's intention may be. A crime is a crime. Murder is murder. And soul murder is soul murder. And violation, sexual violation is violation. And a predator is a predator. It's not about perception. There are things where you don't know for sure what a person did. And you may think something happened. Maybe something didn't happen. Or the intention was good and it didn't result the way you thought it did. But not when you're talking about real black and white crimes. So going back to this, the Tanya explains the general principle that the human psyche has two voices. And we could choose one or the other as I explained before and some people choose unfortunately the other. Not all of us are dealing, none of us ha- are perfect human beings. We have constantly both sides to us. That's the point. As did this individual. But what happens if you start acting on your negative and more and more and more, not just between you and God, but affecting and, cr- and violating others hurting others, and it gets worse and worse, there comes a point where the ra, the negative, is over, completely overwhelming. Does that mean you can't do good things? I'm sure he did good things every day. It's not a contradiction. But I wouldn't use the tanya to just to say, oh, you know what, he's just like another one of us. No, there's just too much crime involved here. Too many people have been hurt. You just don't say that every person is, you don't put everybody in one basket that we're all imperfect human beings. That's true. But some of us have not chosen the path or have allowed or stopped ourselves from choosing the path or harming others in such an extreme way. And no, I can't divide between his books, because you're correct, they can be seen as complete cover up and a participant in what he did, because it also, that's what engendered the trust, which in turn was betrayed by him for these purposes based on all these accusations. Okay. So one more question, why isn't child molestation considered an isra in the Tatah, a prohibition in the Tayyah, or even a Shulchanarch? How can it be that such a terrible sin, tantamount to murder and rape, is not prohibited anywhere in Jewish law? So it's a good question. I have a few suggestions that I would throw out there. I mean, you also don't find that the teah says that please don't hurt children in any fashion or form. Because it's a given. It's a given. Now I know it's not a complete answer because if it's a given, it also we don't need to tell you don't murder. Everyone understands don't murder. But you could also include don't murder means also soul murder. Who says leif sirtzach only means physically killing someone? Maybe halachically certain limited definition like that. But we know malben prechavere which is quoted recently is like killing someone, like ozil, uh, sumkev and boch, that you, when you take you, you malben chavere means you make him pale because the blood of his face rushes out, which is a form of killing someone according to the Gemara. It's not physical murder, but it's a form of murder. So the same thing, even more so, is the murder that we know today of molestation, of violation, especially if someone in power over someone that's powerless. So maybe that's what the Torah includes as well. This I would leave to Rabbanim to define and determine, based on the facts on the ground. There's no way the Torah would allow something of this type of murder. So, that's a given. As far as more details, we can discuss it. I know there are some that say since it doesn't say it, so it means it's not such a big crime. But that, goes, that, that goes, flies in the face of every professional. There's no one that I know of that's reputable, illegitimate, that would say it's a minimal thing. And look at the victims. As much as possible, they would love to forget it, as I said. They can't. I just got a call a few days after this happened from someone. It says, I'd love to forget it all. That's what I did for years, but it's impossible because it touches such a deep place within us. Okay, so I covered pretty extensively just the first section, the first, which is general Torah perspective. But there's a few other questions in this category that I want to address. Can we assume assume his absolute guilt? Where do you draw the line between assuming someone's innocence and judging people favorably and the danger they pose and the damage they may cause others. We assume everyone's uh, innocence. But when there's accusations, you can't just say, stop there. You have to explore it. When the accusations start mounting and there are different people, you can start assuming a certain scenario. But you always have to give the person the right to defend themselves. Now here I know the other camp says, they're defending this individual that he didn't have that right. Well, he could have. Could have gone to a different Bezdin. But he chose another path. So now what do you do? Do you just assume innocence because he chose to, to be a coward and run away from the whole situation? I don't think you can just assume that he's completely innocent. Can we say that you and I can say he's absolutely guilty? That I leave for the Abishter. But we can definitely, definitely say that he has enough reason to protect our children from him. Now thank God. He's not around in that sense, thank God. I mean to say he's not a danger to anyone. But he remains haunting people. And the victims remain unresolved in many ways, which is another topic we shall address. So bottom line is that you draw the line, is even if somebody you may assume is innocent and is not guilty, that still doesn't mean you let your children under his protection. Someone you, you fear can be a murderer, you don't let them close to your family. That doesn't mean he's guilty. It means that's a prudent thing to do. So I think that's where you draw the line. And again, we're not here to make any final judgment on someone. But we are definitely here to address an issue that is clearly an issue. There are human beings out there that are claiming and crying about what was done to them. You can't ignore that either. They're also, also, they are first and foremost voices that need to be heard. Do we have the right to judge another? I think I addressed that. We don't have a right to judge another, but we have a right to make decisions based on what we see. Is there hope for a perpetrator? That again I answered as in the context of yes, tshuva, every person can do tshuva. Every person can repent, every person can return, but they have to go through a process. It's not just, oh, I regret what I did or forget what I did, let's just move on. No, tshuva requires a lot of things, mechila, real remorse, it's a real healing process. In this case, unfortunately, um, it's not happening on this earth. In heaven, God will take care of the rest. Okay, now let's go to the next next section. Intervention and reporting abuse. Do the laws of Massira and Loshan apply to a sexual predator? The laws of Massira means informing on someone. And Lashon is slander, even if it's true. Does it apply to a sexual predator? Not if you know that a sexual predator is murder. If you think it's a minor thing, then you could say, okay, you know, certain things should be dealt with within the community. But when you're talking about with something, like I said before, if you study it and know what you're dealing with, there's no one that's going to come away and say, you know, a person's running down the street with a, with a knife, a murderer. You can't say Lushnaur on him and embarrass him. You can't inform on him. No, he's a danger. As a matter of fact, the first thing you should do is the next question, can we report them to the police? Absolutely. You're talking about a danger to society. You're talking about danger to innocent people. It's the first thing that should be done. Every good rov should say that. And I ask any rov who doesn't say that, if you saw the person with a knife running down the street, you don't say, let's convene the rabbis and let's see, and maybe we don't want to embarrass him. No, because any second he can kill someone. And especially if you know he's already used the knife. Or he's accused of using the knife. So as soon as you equate it with that, everything changes. So absolutely we have to go to the police. Now, there's a bigger issue here. What about the victims? Many victims don't want to go to the police. Because first of all, they don't want further shame. They don't want to be cross-examined. They don't want to go into all the different difficult things. So it has to be done with sensitivity and properly done. And not just like vigilantes and say, let's just go to the police. You have to address the victims. But the victims, not the perpetrator. The perpetrator has to be dealt with immediately. Has to be restrained. And everything possible to prevent anything further harm. But as far as the victims, you need to have that sensitivity. Are we allowed to publicly shame a perpetrator to prevent them from harming others? So here we have to discuss what public shaming means. To go out and just create a lynch mob of just shaming someone because we're outraged, is not the right approach. But to publicly announce, and done with good author- right authorities and Torah authorities that say, this person is a danger, stay away. And especially if the person was warned, and you don't see them in any way doing anything, going to therapy, or in any way restraining themselves, then it's not a matter of public shaming. It's a matter of public protection. And you had no choice but to make that announcement. But there's, a, but there's a line where you don't want to cross where suddenly all of us are just publicly shaming somebody. So this is not easy to navigate, but it needs to be navigated. How should the community deal with abusers who have been accused by credible accusations without creating collateral damage? Yeah, so let me read it. How should the community deal with uh, without creating collateral damage? Family members are likely to suffer if their relative is accused. Is it a consideration to take into account or is it just too bad? I mean, take account of other family members, or is it just too bad? Is it a consideration? If it is a consideration, what should be done in order to punish the abuser but respect the family? I understand this is often a case-by-case basis, but please provide a few specific examples of what can be done. Thank you. It's a very important question, and I've dealt with this quite a few times where a certain individual, let's say, and there's more than once, unfortunately, that was accused, and the accusations held up, and it was established. And the wife calls me and says, What should we do? Why are we guilty? My children can't find a shidduch. We've been now all vilified. So, this is a very difficult one to answer because it could very well be the family is completely innocent. Now, sometimes you can argue, one second, did you not know? Or did you conveniently not know of what your husband was doing? Obviously I tread very sensitively when I spoke with her, and this is more than one situation. But at the same time, even if they did not do anything about it and they knew, it's still they're not the actual the actual criminal. And in many cases they did not know. So what do you do? But the same question could be asked about any crime. If a person's a murderer, and he's found guilty in the court of law. You put them into prison. The family will suffer from it. And I'm not justifying it. It's one of the tragic things that the perpetrator never took into account. Not just what you're doing to other people, to your own family, to your wife and children, or to your husband and children, whoever it may be. So I don't really have a full answer to this question. It's one of the sad facts that people are hurt in the process. There is collateral damage. As authorities, as people looking at it, you want to do the minimal and minimize you know, help the family, help the children process it. Who are definitely not part of it. Children of a perpetrator. And that's also part of our compassion. Not to just vilify everybody. But the fact is, human beings are human beings. But the Torah never says we're guilty by association. If someone's father or brother or sister or anyone is accused and is found guilty, that doesn't make the sibling or the parent or the child guilty. So we have to be wise. Just as we're claiming... And we want justice for the, for the, for the victims. And we, want, we also have to have justice for the people who are suffering that are by extension, siblings, relatives, and others. But never in a way that's a cover-up and minimizes the actual crime. That's critical in this whole process. Okay, so we've dealt now with two of the subjects. I still have to deal with quite a few more. And um, so this program is probably going to go a little longer than usual, but because of the unusual circumstances, it makes sense to do so. The next is the community response, which means how have we responded to this? And here there's also a whole bunch of different questions. How can you find clarity between the conflicting and even seriously contradictory messages coming from different Torah authorities so you have people who have clearly come out and say that he was guilty of all of this, there's enough evidence enough witnesses and that's that and he was called refused to come, refused to acknowledge any wrongdoing then you have people defending like another question is asked how do we justify and explain rabbis whitewashing or ignoring the travesty you see that as well Was it wrong that Gudalim gave positive eulogies at his funeral after all the horrible things he has been accused of? Is this not an overt insult to the victims? How do you explain the response of many prestigious rabbis in Israel praising someone who was accused by more than two dozen women of such heinous crimes? Have they all gone mad? Does this point to a massive moral void in the Jewish community to the extent that a victim took her own life? due to the outpouring of support for a serial rapist? How can this happen? How has he even been able to be buried in a Jewish cemetery if he killed himself? Doesn't Halacha prohibit this? And then, the other side of things. Not to minimize what the victims went through, Chaz Rishol, but I find it hard to believe that the rabbi, Ravel and Svas doesn't have his own personal agenda. If a victim speaks out, yes, I for sure believe them, but he played judge, jury, and witness at the same time and decided he was guilty before hearing them out, hearing him out. Yes, if this happens, the abuser should be called out and jailed, but it should be done right. There wasn't even one police report opened. It all started from a left-wing magazine who was happy to disgrace from people regardless of this, that if the story is true. To clarify, I'm not saying it's not true because he was once a respected person. You quoted... The rabbi Elio was quoted last week about 22 women coming forward, but can everything he say says be trusted? It seemed as if it was a bit of a witch hunt and a personal, and a personal, and a pers- or a personal vendetta. I would appreciate some clarity. So here you see, I read this even though I'm sure some of you are not happy that I read this position because, it, it, yes, it repulses me as much as so many of us because this even attempted somewhat try to suggest everything is fine by saying that the other rabbi has an agenda. Uh, but nevertheless, I read it because there are these conflicting arguments out there. Now, let me be perfectly blunt as I understand it. And I really I don't want to cross any lines here, but I think it's vital. Someone called me who was very, very hurt by this whole experience, and he was hurt mostly, besides the crime, okay, a criminal, and that's horrible and terrible, that rabbi's and others should somewhat whitewash it, as I read, and ignore it. And how's that possible? I mean, are they in it with it? Can we not trust rabbis? So I have to say this. We live in Gollas, and though rabbis are meant to be objective Toyota people looking for Toyota Semis, rabbis can also make mistakes, and worse, they can also be criminal. Now I'm not accusing every rabbi who has defended him, or on the contrary, was it um, rabbis that um, blame the public for the Lashon Hara, which we'll address shortly, that they themselves are perpetrators of the same sort. But it could be, as I said earlier, maybe they know about it, in their circles, and maybe they feel it's something that is not good, it's not good for Torah to bring it out in the public. It's like saying you know certain things, but for the good of the people, and the of Hashem, it's not. Now they also may be ignorant of the impact of abuse on, on, on children and on, and on anyone, on violation. So but no matter what, as they used to say, that if you knew you're guilty by not doing anything about it, and if you didn't know you're guilty by not knowing, The wake-up call I described earlier is also a wake-up call to rabbis. It's time to wake up, all of us. And this is not a personal accusation of any individual rabbi. I'm not mentioning names. It's a wake-up call to all of us, including to myself. I speak to myself as well. To firstly get to know the impact of this terrible soul murder that's going on around us. And how many more are lurking out there? That's what I wonder. And how many more are going to seek Protection of cover ups. So that's number one. Number two, to become responsible leaders. And first thing, say, when people are hurt, we acknowledge your hurt. Now you could say it's a lie to the Ebishta, but the E-bishter tells us about it. We also have to feel that cry of the blood. And if you don't hear a rabbi acknowledging that, you only hear them taking the side of the potential, let's call him alleged perpetrator, is a serious problem. Rabbis will lose the trust of their communities. Yes, you may always have blind diehards that will follow a rabbi no matter what he says, and you see even here, what kind of crimes can happen regarding that. The reason a person is a rabbi is not because he's a great man or because he's a smart person, because he has charisma, is because there's a God that gave us a Torah, and this rabbi has the humble gift and the humble merit to be able to channel God's will in this world if a rabbi doesn't feel that doesn't deserve to be a rabbi and, and, and events like this is where it really gets exposed yet to come to ask a rabbi whether the, the chicken is kosher or whether Shabbos begins at 420 or 421 or when, is, or when, or when we stop eating chum on Erev Pesach is the easy part you know where you really test a rabbi when it comes to the real issues like this that are not easy, that are complex, that are dealing with human condition, with dealing with pain and suffering. And we have to balance both elements. You have to balance the the victim's cry and at the same time recognize the rights of a person to defend themselves. So I'm not suggesting it's easy. But this is where rabbis have to rise to the occasion. And the way they say it is very simple. And if it's too hot in the kitchen and you can't rise to the occasion, maybe it's not your job. It's not just about covet. It's not just about giving a good shir and a good talk and a good uh, drusha. It's about empathy. tayra with love. tayra's chesed. And yes, chesed even to a criminal. But up in and, and confronting. Not by whitewashing. Not by, not by covering up. That's just not an approach. Leisamed al-dam re'echa. And the cover up from tayra's point of view is even worse. That's why the first thing you need is a person to Miswade, that he acknowledges his crime. If he doesn't acknowledge his crime the crime is far worse. Because it's one thing, you made a mistake. But another thing, that you justify it, or you say it never happened, that lie is far bigger crime, because then, then there's no healing. It's like someone said, I don't have a disease. What do you think is going to happen? So we're dealing with the situation, just as it says, that, it also says, there's an MS in the earth. Yes, the Ebershah threw it into the earth, but it's there. It will emerge today or tomorrow or the next day. This event is a great historical wake-up call for each of us to both individuals, and I go back to the rabbis. and I'm not here to preach rabbis. I said I'm talking to myself. A wake-up call to create an unprecedented call of zero tolerance of any such things any longer. And on the contrary, start teaching our children, start teaching our adults, what is healthy intimacy? What is a human body? What did God want when he created Z- Z- Zohar, Nikeva, male and female? Adam, Achava, and all of us. Why did he give us sexuality? Why do we have these, the, these parts of the body? Teach the sanctity of it. The gift to give birth. To create life in a sacred and beautiful and holy way. And the more you teach the positive, the more you preempt the negative. And zero tolerance of the negative, even more than zero, as I mentioned before. So one more thing regarding this topic. How would you respond to rabbis that blame the public Slush and Hara for murdering this author? They blame the public, the public lynching that so shamed him that he had to go co- to take his life. Well, first of all, just like we don't judge anyone, we don't know what the reason he took his life is it because of the public shaming. Was maybe just a narcissist that just continued his narcissistic behavior instead of if he's a Tater person, face your accusers. Defend yourself. Bring all your rabbis. No problem. Bring your evidence. Bring your witnesses. Now, I'm not suggesting public shaming can not destroy a person's life. But you're dealing with not just public shaming. Someone went up and just shamed him. There are some basis for it. So number one, how do you know what the reason was? We don't know the reason. I'm not even judging the, his reasons. Maybe that was his. His reputation was everything. And especially such a reputation. I mean, reading his letter, and I don't want to be so psychoanalyze his letter, but reading the letter, you don't see any remorse. You don't see any issue of nothing. He didn't do anything wrong. Everything He was wronged. It's all about him. So that also tells you something. Anyway, so my answer to that is, as I mentioned before, we, public lynching is not a terror approach. We don't lynch people in public. That's not how we work. But if a person's a danger to others... And, and you see out of the window somebody running with a knife, and you, and, you, and you see a bunch of kids or others standing in the street, you don't say, I can't publicly shame him because if I say he's running with a knife, everyone's going to know he's a murderer, or he's a potential murderer. You yell to everyone, from the rooftops, from everywhere, get out of the way, there's a murderer down the street. Now he may not have murdered, but it's a Suffolk Pukoch Nefesh also. And especially if you know, or you suspect that he did murder and did hurt others. So though public shaming is not the way we go, you, you call someone to adddentate, you, you, you do everything possible, you report them to the police, and you, and you give the, the due process. But at the same time, you can't wait. It's like a fire is burning. Let's first uh, make sure nobody's publicly uh, shamed before we put out the fire. No, first you have to put out the fire. If it's your child, even one percent Suffolk doubt that could be hurt, you do whatever it takes. And I think, again, there's a balance that's needed, but that's the response I would give. Okay. Now let's go to the next category. The next category is speaking to our children. Speaking to our children. What should we be telling our children? How can we protect our children? Parents are all scrambling how to deal with their kids on this issue. What to say to them, how to say to them. And this is also, of course, addressing the books, which we'll talk about in the next section. Now, I spoke about it before. I read a question about someone who felt betrayed, as so many thousands of others, who grew up with these books, who grew up with this person, as a living example, a person who they were inspired by, has inculcated Jewish values in people, even dealing with issues like this, which makes it so much more ironic, if that's a mild word, so speaking with children is a particular art of its own, and I see again this is as a wake-up call and an opportunity. Let's not look at it as we have to, we have to um, clench our teeth and um, and and, and uh, what's the call that I wanted to use? Um, force ourselves as we speak with our children, but look at it as an opportunity for education. Now, of course. We all wish it didn't happen. We all wish we didn't have to address it. So with children, let's make a few things clear. Every child, you have to speak apidarke. His way, his or her way. Depending what age, depending on their personality and character, depending on what questions they have. As a good parent, this is an opportunity to think like your child. Now, if a child doesn't even know about all of this, and it's something you can just ignore, because the books don't exist or that it's not even a question, obviously that may be an approach, even though you can say the child will find out. So when they do, you can discuss it with them. But assuming a child does know what's happened here, has heard the news, especially people who have the books at home and have learned from them and grown from them, and especially if you as a parent or an educator has learned and taught these books or read them together. So I think this is a tremendous opportunity, again, each age according to its way, to f- talk about a few key things. One is about the very fact that everybody in this world has a good and a negative side to them. Yes, the idea from Tanya, divine soul and animal soul. And people make choices. In most cases, the choices are good choices. There are people that sometimes make terrible choices and it gets worse and worse. And you can give examples. You can give example of a person who begins to steal money from someone then steals more money, and just gets away with it and that comes worse and worse. And explain like an infection. If we don't put a Band-Aid on an injury, the infection can grow. That's why we go to a doctor. We take antibiotics. Whatever it is that we do to make sure it doesn't grow. A fire, you see a little spark. You don't say, oh, big thing. The spark can become a flame, a larger flame, and it can create damage. Human beings are the same way. Using gloss from dechi al dechi, you do something small, not addressed it can get worse so we learn from all of this we should learn from this you teach your children that we all, are all that way unfortunately there are people and an example again use your discretion how much you should say and not say an example here's an individual that a, a, first a little fire he was born a beautiful child good education and whatever happened we don't know maybe he was molested who knows that's not an excuse but who knows and then things started to happen, and he got away with it. And then when you grow and you're successful, it becomes you also creates an imagination in your life. You know, Tell your children, sometimes when you're successful, you become a little more, you take for granted your gifts. And you think you can get away with more. You think you're more entitled. You're smart. You think you can cover up. And find examples. Not to say we're comparing ourselves to them, but just lessons. Because it'll make your children learn from it, and then say, then there are people who really have come to a point where they end up, unfortunately, have killed another person, physically, or spiritually, or emotionally. It's terrible. And sometimes it's someone who's done a lot of good things. We see this. and in Godel, 80 years he served. Well, age 80, and he served for many years, I should say, and went into the kadesh Kadoshim, and then he became a tzaduki. However you translate that for children. So people are people. And that's what we learn. Is it terrible? Yes, we cry. We cry when someone falls like that. For them, for their neshama. And we cry for this individual as well. But crying doesn't mean we just forgive or we forget. Crying means now let's use our tears productively and justice. Now unfortunately he went and took his life, which is yet another crime. Now, all of this you have to, again, with discretion, determine which child, what age, and how much to say. I'm just giving you some osius, some words, to be able to explain it. But above all, lessons. Turn it into lessons, not accusations. It's critical that we don't teach our children or ourselves to just start pointing fingers, look at what he did, this one did, that one did. That's not a responsible approach. The responsible, what do we learn from it? As I said at the beginning, catastrophe happens. What are we learning from it? That's what we need to look at. And yes, those that need to, 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 to deal with the justice part deal with that. Those that need to deal with the healing of the victims need to deal with that. But the rest of us, our role is not just to say how horrible it happened, what do we learn from it in our own lives, and so on. Now, as far as protecting our children, this is really a longer discussion. I've given quite a few talks and workshops on this over the years continue to do so. In this wake-up call time, and this really should be extended, not just now, this should be an ongoing basis, we as parents and educators and adults need to learn a new language, how to speak about intimacy with our children. Just like we teach them to look at good things, to speak good things, we have to also teach them about their own intimate parts, but not in a callous or or in a, a grobe, or non-modest way. So let's take you teach, you say God gave us parts of our human body to be able to give birth. God gave us a gift. The only way you can give birth to a child, to create in the language of chesidus, yesh ma'ayin, is through an intimate relationship, between, the sacred intimate relationship between husband and wife. Kedushin, sacred. And that's why we reserve and preserve these parts of ourselves, for that and that alone. It's like going into the Holy of Holies. Teach your children what it means to go into the Kedush Kadoshim. That is your private parts. Now, like anything that's very powerful and holy, can also be abused, can also be hurt. So people talk about telling your children, giving them the license, telling them, no one has a right to touch you, no one has a right to in any way, inappropriately, come and share, you will be listened to, you will be respected, you will not be accused, you'll not be feeling in any way. Now, even with that, we know it's not that simple. Children think differently. And children naturally trust. They trust someone, and then their boundaries are blurred by that person, especially if it's a manipulator, and grooms them, and does all these things, and finds the needy ones, as we all know, all these uh, signs of predators. So I'm not suggesting we have an automatic formula. Really, there isn't. But the more gedusha, the more holiness you introduce into your home, and to your relationship, with your children, with yourselves, husband and wife, siblings, older siblings, the more sanctity spills into the consciousness and even subconsciousness of our children. There's a lot more to say about this, and I'd rather reserve that for its own discussion, but I do want to add one critical thing, which goes back over 10 years ago when I began writing about it. There's zero tolerance in schools, in camps, in any environment where children are. That's easier to enforce than you may think. It's harder in a, pers- in a home. It's harder in a therapeutic situation. But in schools and camps, we can demand it, and we can even legally enforce it. You could have cameras everywhere. You could have rules that it's not, not allowed for any adult to be with a child ever alone. Definitely not sleepovers. And with therapy, I think we need to put in, I remember when Tylenol they discovered the cyanide-laced Tylenol that killed a few. So Tylenol went through a big dilemma. What to do? For some said, you know what, it'll blow over. Some said, no, this is... Uh. Ultimately, they came out with an unbelievable solution. That we are going to use this, this tragedy of the few people who died to create a whole new unprecedented protective caps, which then became the standard in all medicine. So they were seen, and not only not ignoring it, but learning from it. We have to create new preventive measures in therapeutic situations. Besides, in many situations, uh, an adult should never be with a child or be with anyone in a way that compromises them, that could compromise them. question is, what do you do? Part of therapy is private. So whether there's a camera that must be running so everything can be checked, or other things, I mean, we need to put our heads together. But there are things we can do and we must do. It's a real wake up call again in the area of prevention in every possible way. And again, if we look at it straight square in the face of the heinous and the horrible murder that this causes, then we address it differently. If we don't, we'll minimize it. We'll say, okay, it'll pass. This too will pass. No, this is a call of our generation to protect our young, protect the innocent and the vulnerable and above all, to create, as I said, something positive that fills that void, not just not negative. What is positive intimacy? Every school, every home needs to have guidelines. And this is what perhaps writers and teachers and educators and thinkers should, ha- should now be creating, helping us develop all kinds of new methodologies based on Torah of how to make sure our children grow up the healthiest and the holiest possible. Now let's deal now with books his books what should we be doing with his educational books should we be reading books from an unholy author there are very serious and personal questions these are very serious and personal questions and I hope if you choose to answer you will do so without connecting it with any story from the news. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, there was a philosopher named Martin Heidegger, 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 whose books added a wealth of knowledge to the field, but personally he was a racist and a member of the Nazi party, and after the war he never apologized or disavowed his association with the Nazis. This poses a problem in academia where some say we should not read his books lest we show any support to someone who was a racist. Others say we absolutely should read his books because the knowledge is so good, but we can make a separation between the books and the author who was a morally repugnant person. Similar questions can be asked about Aristotle who wrote that it's wrong to commit certain averas. And one day a student walked into the barn and saw Aristotle doing the same avera and same sin and asked how he could do that. When he preached against it, Aristotle famously answered, that was Aristotle, the philosopher, and this is Aristotle, the man. I bring this up because this week there has been a community scandal where an author of children's books has been accused of abusing women. Some people are burning his books and posting videos on social media. So I ask, what should be our appropriate response? On the other hand, if his books have good content and can help people, maybe they should still be read but with a separation between the book content and the author who's accused of terrible abuses. But I can also imagine a situation where if we keep his books and we have a guest over for Shabbos who we didn't know was one of the victims, they would be very uncomfortable and be traumatized by seeing his book and his name on our shelf. So what should we do? Of course we should show every measure of love and support to victims of abuse and help them in any way they need. But if we apply today's standard of cancel culture to every historical figure, we would cancel King David after he did things wrong and we wouldn't have the beautiful book of Tehillim, or we would cancel Moshe Rabbeinu after he hit the rock and we wouldn't have the Torah. So another person wrote about a woman, a girl who was abused, and, and, and asking that the abuser, who's today already passed on, His menorah that he created should be removed from a shul. I don't know what people are expecting to be the outcome, but as someone that leans to the right in politics, I can't stand the cancel culture. If we must rid of the books, then the logic can lead us to what the girl wants, removing the menorah. I promise you that the holiness of the menorah, where thousands have sat beside it and cried their hearts out over the years, is far greater than the great evil of the sin. Of course the two stories are not the same but as someone who despite the hypocrisy desperately would love to see some people canceled I was taught to believe that any good they do is generous is generous, genuinely good it would be more beneficial to steer the conversation toward how exact toward how exactly everyone should handle this prevention education and what to do after the fact to do right after the fact i think the books are a distraction thank you for your time well as far as the halacha goes, you'll find many different nuances about books written by people, either dubious characters or people who are actually apostates or people who did terrible crimes. So there's the halacha on, on the books, but then there's also the immediacy of it. At this point, we're not talking about something happened thousands of years ago, a thousand years ago, or hundreds of years ago, and the question is, is there any redeeming factor in these books? You're dealing with a haunting presence of an, of an alleged abuser and victims that are their wounds are open. So there's a common sense here as well. Not just what's the letter of the law, whether you could or you can't. Remember, his books are not Tituship Exava They may have been good books. And you know, maybe the time has come that they're no longer necessary. I don't see any issue with that. We don't have to insist that his books remain. Do you have to go burn them in public? That again, that's an outrage some people may feel. I'm not going to weigh in on that. I don't believe that necessarily outrage is the solution, even though outrage should drive us, but the question is where to direct it and should be harnessed toward positive means. If someone said, I'm going to create now better books than he did on the same subject matter for children, children speaking, and so on, I would respect that. That's great. As I said, can you take the negative, and turn it into a very great positive. But just the negative, just to eliminate, is not. But on the other hand, the points made here are very accurate. Now in Yiddishkeit, we know what you do and who you are is very relevant to each other. Bertrand Russell, like Aristotle, also famously once said when he behaved immorally, they said, "How do you teach morality, you teach ethics, how could you behave immorally? And Russell responded, I also teach mathematics and I'm not a triangle. In Judaism, in stark contrast, the Rambam says, chachem. How do you know who's a Chachem? Not by how brilliant he is in his books and his teachings. Look at his behavior. How he eats, how he sleeps, how he walks, how he talks, how he treats people. So by us, there's a seamlessness. Does it mean we're all perfect? No. But when you have something of this outrage and this level of crime, my vote would be, there's no reason to fight for his books. It is what it is. Those people that were influenced by the books are going to have to figure out, like in any process of tshuva, how do you extract the good spark? Just like people who've done all kinds of terrible things in life. I'm not saying it's the same, but just as an example. So they learn something positive from that. Same thing here. You could take the lessons you learned, change you for the better. That's great. And does he get credit for it somewhere in heaven? Why shouldn't he? But the bottom line is, to say that we should continue to celebrate his books, I would probably vote not. Again, it's not necessarily a matter of purely halacha here. Somebody wants to read his books and derive from it, then they don't feel affected. If they're not offending anyone else, there's just too much, too much um, toxins around. It's just too, too uh, emotional. And I mean in a good way. I don't mean emotional as subjective. It's just too close to this, like, it's like, it's like, right, the, the, the the embers are still burning of this burning building. So why go there in a place that's so sensitive? and can be hurtful to so many people. And especially that he ended his life in this fashion. So that's my approach, approach I would take to, toward this. As far as what's a greater crime or not, I can't answer that. Someone who's been hurt by someone, who's been raped, who's been violated, doesn't want to see any reminder of that person. I think they have a right to demand that. I think objective people should look at it case by case and determine yes where yes, where not. That's how I look at it. I don't see it as something that we can easily, you know, I may not be offended that somebody, I mean, I, there are many things in this world that were created by people who are horrible people. We may not even know that they're horrible. We don't even know who created it. But if you do find out, and especially someone who's been hurt by it, like if you suddenly had something from a major Nazi that would be placed in a public display and celebrated, I could see people complaining. What, how could you do such a thing? But there's also the other extreme of cancel culture. You don't want to go to the other extreme of just, uh, just literally destroying anything because it may offend somebody. But here we're talking about, as again, it's in the, in the, we're in the shadow. We're literally, it's like the crime just was perpetrated. The blood is still, is still warm. In that situation, I think we have to take a far more stronger approach. Time passes, and this will be forgiven. And Not, not that he's forgiven. That will be forgiven, and his books, some people will say, has some merit. Discuss it then. But I don't think right now is the time to really get into this debate. Okay. So let's look at victim's closure. Okay. Victim closure. I want to answer the question, should we be reading books from an unho- unholy author? Well, this goes back to the question of there you know, are halachic discussions in this whether so an unholy author you can read the book even though the person may be unholy. It's case by case and there are nuances. I don't want to go into all the details that has been discussed by others. I have saw some good talks delivered on this topic. I could definitely refer you. But uh, I don't want to digress either from the main topic that we're addressing here. But especially, and again, right now, I would not read books from this unholy author because of the reasons that were described. As I said, the blood is still warm. Okay. Next question, victims' closure. What can the victims now do to get closure and find justice? Do we continue to pursue justice and humiliate him after his death? Are we allowed to defile his memory for revenge? Can the victims sue his family and his estate for compensation for their injuries? How How should one think about the suicide of one that caused others harm? So a little more breakdown. Dear Rabbi Jackson, this week there was a high-profile suicide by a famous children's book author who was accused of using his position to force improper relationships with women and others. He took the coward's way out, and by doing, doing it before a court trial, he deprived the victims of seeking or seeing justice. What can the victims now do to get closure and find justice? Okay. Okay, that's one. Another person writes, how should one think about the suicide of one that's caused others harm? If their suicide is not a good outcome, how should their misdeeds be addressed while avoiding suicide? If one was wicked and harmed people, but also helped other people, does one negate the other? That I addressed already earlier. How could there be a halacha that does not allow for someone who dies by suicide due to mental health to be buried in a Jewish cemetery and to be mourned by Shiva? This seems so insensitive and inconsistent with Torah values. It feels cold and cruel. I know that today they assume that they did shuva a second before they died, so they follow, allow them to be buried. But how can there be such Allah in the first place? What if they didn't do tshuva? How is such Allah justified? Thank you for your amazing platform of My Life Chassidus Applied. It's incredible and has helped tremendously this last year. If my father-in-law, Olav Hashalm, committed a grave sin of physical abuse toward my niece, and she confessed, and she she, she, uh, she uh, described it after he passed away. Are we to continue giving him COVID? Our niece has many emotional problems because she said he abused her. We don't know if it's true. My father-in-law isn't here to respond. Okay. So there are halachas about carrying, someone leaves this world and they never stood took up in a court of law or they committed suicide in some other ways. First of all, we need to realize there's a bezin and Shalmayla. Things are not over. That person will have to face God and the heavenly court. Now, does that give us a measure of peace? It should to some extent, because right now we can't do anything directly with that person. You can't confront them. At the same time, can you, for example, sue the state for damages? It's an interesting question. I would think that you could, and uh, But I think Rabboni, we're going to have to weigh in on this, and I don't like to go into psakim, psa-kim and halachis of this program. But let's talk about the emotional side of closure. It is c- particularly complicated when there's a suicide, or a person dies in general, and you've never gotten forgiveness and closure. This is also true with parents and children, even for lesser crimes, but especially one of this nature. So this is going to require a lot of work, to be very honest. Because again, you're going to have to separate. I'm talking now to any person that was hurt. You're going to have to separate between your hurt and you. You were hurt, but it doesn't define you. You're going to have to learn that he did not control you, even though he controlled you in the abuse. But he does not control your future. And that's a healing process. Is it easier if you find justice and you confront and the person asks for forgiveness and 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 you grant forgiveness because you feel it was sincere? Obviously, but this makes it more complicated. So closure is going to be a big issue, but I want to say a few things about closure. Besides, obviously, the right to, the outrage, the anger, the right to speak and not be silenced, the right to cry, I think ultimately the greatest redemption and healing will come when you turn your pain into growth, where you become a tremendous advocate for what we spoke about earlier, this historic opportunity unprecedented opportunity to create a new generation that looks at intimacy in a far healthier way, that does not allow and tolerate any type of such crimes. I have seen people who have been molested and hurt turn movements and helping others who have been that way. There is a Gemara that says The Talmud says someone who prays for another, God answers first to you. You get the answer first. In other words, by helping another, it helps you. And that is a very powerful way of healing. But everything in stages, you need people that you can trust. Regaining trust is going to be extremely difficult because once trust has been betrayed and abused, you start saying, how can I trust someone else? That's what happens. That's part of what a wound does. So that needs work and patience. And we can't just expect a victim, or I would call them a survivor, just to say, okay, now I'll trust. It's going to be very difficult. Children especially where the wounds are so deep, and almost beyond our control, because it's like someone cut something inside you. That cut is there. You you can't do anything about it. But you can learn to heal from that too, and take that negative energy and turn it into positive energy. I know it's easier said than done, but it has to be said. With all the compassion and the love and the empathy, and there's no question that if rabbis and leaders and teachers and educators and uh, anyone that considers themselves in that position would also re-infor- reinforce and validate this approach that would also go a long way to healing because when you hear a rabbi who in a way supports this individual or at least doesn't doesn't criticize and is somewhat like minimizing and blaming others that just adds to the abuse so that's part of the answer to closure. I wouldn't say to defile his memory. I could see someone having a temptation, but it's not the Torah way. It's not the healthy way. It's like the Jewish people's revenge against the Nazis at the end of the day was building families. You ask Holocaust survivors, they say, well, revenge. They didn't go to, to do things to defile their memory. Though obviously when something came up, you have to address it. But the bottom line is that, um, that, that the best way revenge, like most Holocaust survivors will tell you, they show you a photo album of their children and their grandchildren. Building, becoming stronger is the best revenge. So that's where I would direct it. Do I understand? Of course I do, and I'm not going to go, therefore just criticize it. The point is to channel it, to help people channel. So the same thing with humiliating. It's not a point of humiliating. The point is to make things positive. Now, I understand that when you start hearing Different rabbis say different things. That only causes you more anger and more reason to humiliate. So remember, this becomes a vicious cycle. And I think both approaches are not correct. Rabbis have to, uh, others that are somewhat minimizing or uh, ignoring, need to look at it very closely in their hearts. But that doesn't mean we should respond, reciproca- reciprocate, also with just further, with further negative things but we have to find some way of positively challenging it, channeling it into positive actions. So now we come to the end of this program, the final lessons learned and looking ahead. What can we learn from this, and what can we do as individuals and as a community? What can we do to help grow awareness and prevent further atrocities against the innocent? Why aren't more female mental health professionals addressing this issue? So let me just read that one. Um, are they are they they not standing up or are they not being welcomed? The women, the female professionals, having males and females available to reach out to allows for more victims to come forward and be heard and supported. And so, shouldn't women be encouraged to speak up? So let me just answer that quickly. Yes, absolutely. Women, many of them have even deeper um, empathy and have a, a certain sense. And remember, this is a crime, unfortunately, against women and men. So I think weighing in for, on all levels is critical for all people. Which leads me now to my final remarks, and I say final, I don't think this is the end of the story, but at least for now. Life is a blessing, and it's a blessing to live all times, and including this time. No matter all the difficulties and challenges, including this last nightmare, we are here because God put us in this world. That means you and I have a mission to accomplish. Now, how do we know what that mission is? So, we know the general mission that God sent each of us to this world to make a divine home in a dark and hostile world. That's what we were told to do. However, the darkness and hostility does cover up sometimes on our mission. And when you see special darkness, it gets more difficult. And that's why we have the call of God to each of us. Ayeka, where are you? Are you recognizing your mission? Are you aligned with your mission? Or is your means, what you do, disjointed and not aligned to who you are? And ma'osisa, what did you do? What do you do with your life? What are you doing with there's a crime? So part of our mission is to look at the events in our lives, everything. The positive and also the negative and say, what am I doing to rise to the occasion? This is what the Rambam says, that when a catastrophe happens, there has to be a wake-up call. What are you and I doing to rise to the occasion? To both do everything possible to prevent any atrocity, which means to give every child, every innocent person, a platform, a voice, never silence, never minimize, even if there's a doubt,